and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Kahn. As always, thank you very much for listening. In the last episode of our series on Girolamo Savonarola, we observed the fallout resulting from the decision of King Charles VIII of France to invade Italy, specifically how it affected the city of Florence. At the point when this decision was made, in the early days of the year 1494, Charles VIII had already harbored ambitions to invade Italy to assert his ancestral claim to the throne of the Kingdom of Naples for quite some time. He had been motivated to act on these ambitions by a rather complicated confluence of developments in Italy itself, including the recent deaths of Pope Innocent VIII, the previous King of Naples, Ferrante I, and the ruler of Florence, Lorenzo de' Medici three men who had all striven to uphold the balance of power among the various smaller states of the Italian peninsula. The 40,000-strong army which Charles VIII invaded Italy with was a much larger armed force than the region had seen in recent memory, and owing to their immense ranks and proficiency in combat, the French army was able to cut a bloody swath across northern Italy in the autumn of 1494, putting them within striking distance of Florence by late October. The eldest son and the heir of the late Lorenzo the Magnificent, Piero de' Medici, was only 22 years old at the time. Young and inexperienced, he had no idea how to respond to this unprecedented turn of events. Attempting to mount an armed defense of the city seemed almost certain to result in defeat. Instead, Piero, seeking to directly emulate his father's famous actions two decades earlier, opted for a diplomatic approach. On October 26th, Piero traveled personally to the camp of the French king in the hopes of negotiating his way out of this imminent conflict. The negotiations proved to be rather short and one-sided. Folding almost immediately to the king's demands, Piero agreed, among other things, to surrender a number of strategic fortifications to the French, to grant them a massive subsidy of 200,000 gold florins, and to allow the French army to occupy Florence itself while they made their way south. Piero and his rule had been quite unpopular among the people of Florence for quite some time already. He possessed very few of the qualities of his father that had enabled him to hold on to power for so long. When the news reached the city of Piero's agreement with the French, there was an immediate perception that he had sold out Florence in order to save his own skin. Thus, the public turned decisively against Piero and overthrew the young ruler in a nearly bloodless revolt. But although Piero and the Medici family were expelled from Florence, hopefully for good, there still remained the issue of the French. Enter Girolamo Savonarola. Four years prior, Savonarola had been invited to stay in Florence by Lorenzo de' Medici. In the time since then, he had acquired a reputation for himself as a powerful orator, a champion of the poor and downtrodden of Florence, and as a holy man who could, thanks to God's intercession, predict the future. And now it seemed that he was the only man left in the city who could still command the respect of the masses. With this information in mind, the Signoria of Florence, the nine-man council which served as the city's executive body, appointed Savonarola at the head of a diplomatic mission tasked with negotiating with the French king to convince him to spare Florence the fate that had befallen so many other cities and towns in Italy. Savonarola made a profound impression upon the king, who agreed to not sack the city, but still insisted on occupying it all the same. Faced with little choice in the matter, the Signoria consented, and in mid-November, the French army marched into the city. Their occupation of Florence lasted 11 days in total, during which time tensions ran rather high between the occupying forces and the city's inhabitants. With the city completely at its mercy, 
Charles VIII gave the Signoria a series of demands which they could not, or in some cases refused, to comply with. In the negotiations which followed, the French agreed to evacuate Florence's territory on the condition that the Florentines provided him with a monetary subsidy that, while not quite as hefty as the one Piero had offered them, was nevertheless quite substantial. In the days that immediately followed, the fact that the king seemingly made no immediate effort to decamp the city caused tensions between the French and the Florentines to run even higher. Another intervention from Savonarola was necessary to spur the dithering king into upholding his end of the bargain, and on November 28th, the French army decamped from Florence. The city of Florence that the French left behind on that day was a city humbled. Greatly diminished in its power and prestige, its people had been reduced to a state of utter confusion. The first order of business now that the French were gone was a comprehensive reform of Florence's government. The Medici, who had ruled the city since Piero's great-grandfather Cosimo de' Medici returned from exile in 1434, may have been gone, but the institutions that they had built up over the years so as to maintain their power remained. Now it was time for Florence to return to a purer, more democratic system of republican government such as they had had in the days past. On December 2nd, a mere four days after the French departure, the bells of the Piazza della Signoria rang out, summoning the citizens of Florence to a public assembly. People from across the city answered the call, and when the men of the Signoria judged that two-thirds of the population were present, the proceedings could begin. The primary purpose of this assembly was to allow the people of Florence an opportunity to voice their consent of some of the radical new changes that had been very recently proposed by the Signoria. A herald read aloud the three primary proposals. Firstly, all the legislative and executive councils that had been established by the Medici were to be abolished. Secondly, all Florentine citizens who had been banished from the city by the Medici would be allowed to return. Thirdly and finally, a new 20-man commission, known simply as the Council of Twenty, was to be established that would have the power to devise a new constitution for the Republic. To each of these proposals, the crowd voiced their overwhelming approval. No doubt all this talk of grand councils and Republican revival must have struck a great many in the audience that day as unusual. There was scarcely anyone alive in the city at the time who could remember what Florence had been like without the domineering influence of the Medici. After decades of autocratic rule, the people of Florence had long since ceased to conceive of themselves as a democratic body, a fact which would further complicate the process of democratic reform. With the Florentines' constant hearkening back to the pre-Medici era as a golden age of Republican liberty, it can be easy to forget that the Republic of Florence had not been a democracy in the modern sense of the term. Rather, it would be more appropriate to characterize it as a sort of oligarchy, that is to say, ruled by a relatively small group of wealthy individuals. Unlike elsewhere in Europe, where ancient noble houses with lineages stretching back well into the Middle Ages were front and center, Italian nobility tended to be of new money. Their status as nobility had been effectively purchased through their recent successes as merchants, bankers, and tradespeople. The Medici were just the most prosperous of these many families. The rule of the oligarchs in Florence had not been an unintentional political development, nor was it an invention of the Medici. Rather, this political arrangement had been inherent to the Florentine political system from the very beginning and had been secured by the very foundational structures of the government itself. The magistrates of the Signoria, for instance, had always been elected directly from the upper echelons of the city's guilds. Naturally, there was an expectation on the part of the Florentine oligarchs that they would be the backbone of this new regime. 
Despite the shared economic and political interests among the class of oligarchs in Florence, this sizable group was rather heterogeneous and riven with internal divisions. The primary divide amongst them was between the supporters and the opponents of the Medici. During the years in which they ruled, the Medici had come to rely on certain members of the oligarch class to form their administrative apparatus. To this end, they favored certain families over others and maneuvered those whom they trusted into positions of power and privilege. The ousting of Piero from Florence and the subsequent violence against the more outspoken supporters of the Medici had effectively sidelined this faction from Florentine politics. In fact, the only confirmed death during the anti-Medici revolt of November 1494 was one unfortunate partisan of Piero, whose incessant cries of Pale, the traditional rallying cry of Medici supporters, had incited a mob to beat him to death. While the nepotistic style of politics practiced by the Medici had created an entire class of people who were unflinchingly loyal to the Medici and utterly dependent on their patronage, the decisions of the Medici to exclude other families from power had bred its fair share of resentment, and created a different class of people who vehemently opposed them. The Medici typically dealt with such dissenters by hounding them into exile, but now that a general amnesty had been proclaimed, those families who had been cast out of Florence by the Medici now returned in droves, eager for their revenge against the Medici cronies who remained in the city. The fact of the matter was that the violence of the past weeks had not resulted in the total expulsion of Medici loyalists from Florence. Many remained within the city, quietly scheming for a restoration of the Medici to their rightful place. Their names were known to the increasingly radical opponents of a Medici restoration. After all, many of them had been loyal apparatchiks of the old regime. Hoping to prevent the complete breakdown of public order, the men of the Signoria urged calm, and they refused to give in to partisanship and prosecute those who had previously served under the Medici. The people, motivated in equal parts by ancestral revenge and the fear of the Medici's return, refused to follow the Signoria's lead and began to take matters into their own hands. Vigilante justice had become the order of the day, as anti-Medici partisans took to the streets to settle old scores and exact their vengeance. At some point in early December, a mob ransacked the house of one Antonio Miniati and set it ablaze. Miniati himself was able to escape and took refuge in a church, but was nevertheless apprehended once he got there. Luckily for Miniati, it was the authorities who had caught up with him and not the mob, who surely would have lynched him on the spot. Soon after, however, his dead body was seen hanging by the neck from the window of the police captain's headquarters. This grisly display remained there for several hours, but the mob would not be so easily mollified. The crowds began to clamor for the executions of more Medici collaborators, and the Council of Twenty eventually gave in. They decided to prosecute another former Medici functionary, a government notary named Giovanni da Pradovecchio. Landucci, the diarist, described him as a man who was, quote, widely hated and of little worth to anyone, end quote. However, before he could be handed over to the mob to face justice, Savonarola effectively issued him a pardon, preaching from his pulpit that the time for retribution was over, and it was time for the people to show mercy. This action was one of Savonarola's first overt political actions. This is not to say that Savonarola was by any means new to politics. He had a deep knowledge of political subjects that often surprised those who spoke with him on while many of his previous sermons had been essentially political in their subject matter, for most of his public career, Savonarola had refrained from leveraging his significant influence to advance his own aspirations. 
Now, as Savonarola's biographer Pasquale Villari put it, quote, Now the hour had struck for his appearance in the arena of politics, and notwithstanding the firm determination which he had hitherto held aloof from it, he was now compelled to obey the summons by the pressure of events, end quote. The fact of the matter was that with the Medici out of the picture, the people of Florence now lacked a figure who stood out to them as an obvious leader. The only public figure other than Savonarola who may have been capable of fulfilling this role was Piero Caponi. As the city's acting gonfalonier, or mayor, since the flight of Piero de' Medici, Caponi was the closest thing to a natural leader Florence had at this time. His dramatic confrontation with King Charles VIII, as described in the previous episode, had won him citywide fame, but he himself lacked the temperament for civil politics, preferring the sword to the pen. In the absence of any other competent man whose name was well known and respected, the people naturally turned to Savonarola. It can, in fact, be said that if any one man had benefited from the calamities that had befallen Florence in the last two months, it was Savonarola. He had emerged on the other side of the city's tribulations more popular than ever. His confrontation with the French king had demonstrated his political acumen and great personal fortitude. Not only had his actions saved the city from near certain destruction, but his words now carried significantly more weight now than, than they ever had in the past. For several years, Savonarola had foretold of the avenging sword of God, which would descend upon Italy on account of the numerous sins of the Italian people. He had also prophesied the arrival of a new Cyrus, an unstoppable conqueror who would serve as the instrument of God's wrath upon the earth. While these prophecies had been earnestly believed by many, Many others had scoffed at him and refused to take heed of his warnings. Now, however, observers quickly associated the sword of God that Savonarola spoke of with the invading French army, and the new Cyrus with the figure of Charles VIII. The lessons that Savonarola had wished to impart were clear. The people could only afford to ignore his warnings at their collective peril. Around this time, Savonarola was in the process of delivering his yearly sermons for the Christian holy season of Advent. One notable sermon from the series was the one that he delivered on December 7th. Although it was modeled, as all his sermons were, along the lines of a particular passage from the Bible, Savonarola could not help but give his commentary on recent events. The subject of this day's sermon was Psalm 149. Quoting the psalm's first verse, Savonarola told his congregation to, quote, sing to the Lord a new song, end quote. To Savonarola, despite the uncertainty of the future, the people of Florence had been given ample cause to rejoice. They had withstood the tumultuous events of the past month and emerged from the ordeal stronger than ever and renewed in their faith. But, however, there were many trials still yet to come. The day was soon at hand when the great flood would cleanse the church, and the people of Florence, which he now claimed was God's new city on earth, must be prepared to play a leading role in the days that would follow. The ousting of the Medici had indeed been God's work, but that was only the beginning. To Savonarola, the work of reforming the government and the work of spiritual renewal went hand in hand. In order to create a righteous form of government pleasing to the Lord, the people of Florence would have to continue their commitment to prayer and to simple and virtuous living. He expounded on these themes in his sermon of December 10th, quote, I announce this good news to the city that Florence will become more glorious, richer, and more powerful than it has ever been. First, glorious with regards to God and to men, and you, Florence, will be the reformation of all of Italy. The renewal will begin here and expand everywhere, for this is the center of Italy, and it will be your councils that will reform all through the light and grace that will be given to you by God. 
Second, Florence, you will have unaccountable riches and God will multiply everything for you. Third, you will spread your empire. Thus, you will have temporal and spiritual power. And you will have such abundant things that you will say, we want for nothing more. But if you do not do as I have instructed you, none of these things shall come to pass. End quote. What is particularly striking about Savonarola's sermon of December 10th is its radical departure in tone from his previous teachings. While Savonarola had previously garnered a well-deserved reputation as a preacher of doom, he now preached a message of faith and hope, of deliverance from the apocalypse that he had described so vividly in the past. On December 14th, Savonarola delivered what has been called the first of his great political sermons. For this sermon, Savonarola announced in advance that women would not be allowed to attend. The purpose behind this prohibition was simple. Women of this era were excluded from the body politic. They had no say in the affairs of state. In inviting only men to hear his words, Savonarola had hoped to influence as large a portion of the city's enfranchised population as he could. According to Landucci, these sermons drew in between three and 4,000 listeners, approximately two-thirds of the city's eligible voters. When Savonarola took to the pulpit, he began by embarking on a lengthy political discourse, stunning all those in attendance with the breadth of his political understanding. After outlining for his listeners his ideal form of government, which we will discuss at length a bit later on, he gave them his prescription for what steps had to be taken in order for such a government to take form. Quote, the first thing you must do is to make a general peace between all citizens and see to it that all past offenses are forgiven and cancelled out. And I say to you and command you in God's name, pardon everyone and keep in mind what these others have done, anyone else would have done if called upon to do so. If you make such a peace, all you citizens together and stay united, believe me that when they hear of this unity, all your enemies will fear you, and in this way you will be made safer and stronger than them. Why do you flee peace if you are such a good citizen? Peace is none other than love and charity, and if you lack these things, then you are not a true Christian. Peace is what unites you. So I say unto you, peace, peace, Florence. End quote. Savonarola's call for a general truce among the people of Florence was actually more radical than it may seem at first glance. In effect, Savonarola was asking against the people of Florence, went against the time-honored practice of Florentine politics, the treatment of political rivals as blood enemies, a practice which resulted in the vanquished being punished by not only imprisonment, but with torture, exile, and the seizure or destruction of property. Amidst this atmosphere of uncertainty and unrest, which characterized this time of political transition in Florence, Savonarola stood out as one whose spiritual guidance offered the people a way out of the petty and violent sectarianism of recent days. His vision of Florence as God's new city on earth as a new Jerusalem, was one that could appeal to all, that had the potential to unite the mutually hostile factions of Florentine politics. Savonarola's growing authority on political matters was recognized by the Council of Twenty, which on several occasions invited the friar to consult with them regarding the reformation of Florence's government with which they had been charged. In formulating his ideal form of government, Savonarola drew inspiration from the Republic of Venice. Primarily, what he had envisioned was the creation of an institution similar to what the Venetians called the Great Council. In Venice, the Great Council was an exceptionally large government body consisting over 2,000 members. This council was responsible for the election of most of the Venetian government's officials, save for the doge himself, the head of state who was more or less unaccountable to the Great Council. 
This was one of several aspects of the Venetian form of government that Savonarola was quick to clarify were undemocratic and therefore inappropriate for Florence's new government. While in Venice, membership in the Great Council was based upon hereditary right, Savonarola's reconception of the institution would allow any tax-paying male citizen above the age of 29 to participate, an arrangement that would have enfranchised about one-fifth of Florence's population at that time. Although it may not align with modern conceptions of democracy, Savonarola's proposed form of government was, in fact, radically more inclusive than any that had been seen in Europe since the days of the ancient Greek city-states. It is worth noting that Savonarola was by no means unique in his admiration of Venice's republican institutions. One group of people who shared his appreciation of the Venetian constitution as a desirable form of governments for Florence were the men of the Soderini faction, so-called because of their unofficial leader, Paolantino Soderini, the bishop of the nearby town of Volterra. Soderini had been one of Savonarola's more outspoken allies in his push for a government modeled on that of Venice. Of course, the members of the Soderini faction had ulterior motives in this. Being almost entirely composed of Medici loyalists, they advocated for a wholesale adoption of the Venetian constitution, including many of its more undemocratic aspects that Savonarola had rejected. They believed that such an arrangement would allow for the existing ruling class of Florence to retain a greater deal of their power and prestige. At the same time, Savonarola's proposal had also raised the hopes of another group of people, whom I will broadly refer to as the populists. These populists were people of a much more modest social standing. Merchants, traders, artisans, even destitute noblemen. Their vision of the future of the Florentine government was a more democratic one, one in which the franchise would be broadened even more widely. The radical among them called for universal manhood suffrage, and the removal of all qualifications necessary to run for office. For the most part, these were men from families who had been persecuted and marginalized by the Medici regime, and as such they were more staunchly anti-Medici in their orientation. Savonarola's proposal lay somewhere in between these two extremes. The proposals of the Soderini faction were deemed too elitists, while the populists were excessively egalitarian. In Savonarola's model, certain restrictions would remain in place regarding the eligibility to the Great Council, that is to say, the right to vote. For this, one still needed to be a tax-paying citizen aged 29 or older, but this action still represented a radical widening of the electorate and dispersed a greater degree of political power to the citizenry than it had ever possessed in the past. In this way, Savonarola's proposal for the new republic was effectively a compromise between the divisions of the two opposing factions. It was one that should have theoretically satisfied all parties involved. On December 22nd and 23rd, the Council of the Commune and the Council of the People, both of which were vestiges of the old regime, voted overwhelmingly in favor of the creation of a Great Council. The Great Council was given a wide range of executive and legislative functions, including the ability to appoint all magistrates and to approve all laws. A major step towards the reformation of the Florentine government had been taken, but still much uncertainty abounded exactly how many citizens would be eligible for membership in the Great Council. How effectively could this new body even function? Moreover, would the city's oligarchs truly accede to the democratic will? Controversy centered on the Council of Twenty, that provisional executive body of the Republic. Composed entirely of the wealthiest and most powerful men in Florence, the Council was predictably reluctant to relinquish its mandate. After the establishment of the Great Council in late December, the Council of Twenty claimed the authority to directly appoint the members of the Signoria. 
This action proved to be deeply unpopular with the general public, who perceived it, quite justifiably, as an infringement on their democratic rights. This was a problem that would ultimately resolve itself, however, as the Council of Twenty would implode due to factional infighting before the year was out. Meanwhile, Savonarola had taken on a new cause, the abolition of the law euphemistically referred to as the Law of the Six Beans. This law was a rather antiquated one, which enabled the Signoria to sentence anyone found guilty of crimes against the state to imprisonment, exile, mutilation, confiscation of property, or death. In order to pass such sentences, the Signoria would have to come up with six affirmative votes out of nine, hence the name. To Savonarola, such a law was incompatible with the new republic that he was working towards. It is worth noting that the Signoria was an executive rather than a judicial body, and through this law, they possessed the arbitrary power of life and death over the people in the same manner as the ancient Roman emperors. This law was typically invoked only in extreme cases, and therefore it had not been openly challenged. However, Savonarola saw in it a potentially dangerous weapon that the leaders of the new republic could wield against their political adversaries, and as such, he began to agitate for the law to be abolished. In its place, he proposed a new arrangement, which would grant the accused recourse to appeal their sentence to the Great Council, where a two-thirds majority vote would be necessary to uphold or strike down the sentence. Unsurprisingly, many of the city's elites resented having these powers taken away from them. However, conscientious of Savonarola's immense popularity, they dared not confront him directly, instead delegating this task to two of his rivals within the clergy, Father Tommaso Rieti and Father Domenico de Pescia. The public debate held between Savonarola and these two priests is described as a rather dry and academic affair, pertaining almost exclusively to the question of whether or not the clergy should be involved in politics or not. The debate ended inconclusively without a clear victor, but Savonarola had received the message. The grandees of Florence were growing wary of his ever-increasing influence on the political affairs of the city. At a sermon delivered the next day, he told his congregation, quote, I have now become the scandal of Florence, but nevertheless, I am still here, end quote. Savonarola's campaign to overturn this law of the Six Beans eventually stalled out, and he seemed to lose heart somewhat. On January 25th, after having delivered his sermon more or less typical of him, full of the warnings of the coming apocalypse and exhortations to live virtuous lives, Savonarola suddenly announced, quote, I want to be a friar. I renounce the state and wish no longer to concern myself with laws and councils. I am going to my cell. Do not send for me. Even if the king of France and the pope themselves come, I will not return. End quote. Savonarola's resignation from the political sphere was no doubt shocking to observers, but with the benefit of retrospect, we can now infer some reasons for this. November 1494 had been a very trying time for all the inhabitants of Florence, especially someone who had played such a central role in events as Savonarola. If you'll recall, at the time that Savonarola was first approached to lead a delegation to the French camp, he was already on the brink of complete physical and mental exhaustion after having delivered several consecutive days of highly passionate sermons for the season of Advent. His diplomatic skills were called upon time and time again throughout the crisis, all the while he was obliged to finish delivering these Advent sermons. After the flight of the Medici and the withdrawal of the French army, there was still yet more work to be done, and as we have seen, Savonarola had involved himself quite thoroughly in the subsequent efforts to reform the Florentine government. Exhausted by the events of the past two months, Savonarola no doubt found himself in a very emotionally vulnerable state, a sentiment that is reflected in his public orations that he gave around his, this time. It was also around this time that he received news of 
two untimely deaths among his intimates. The most devastating of these was that of Savonarola's mother, Elena. To be sure, Savonarola's religious mission had taken him far away from home, and he himself admitted that he was not able to write his mother as often as he had liked. The letters that he was able to send his mother, at least those that have survived, strike a tone of self-righteousness not dissimilar to his public sermons. Nevertheless, beneath his usual sanctimony, there is a sort of sentimentality and compassion that is not often seen in his other writings. Savonarola seems to have loved his mother just as anyone else might have, and his constant urging for her to abandon her worldly concerns betrays a genuine concern for the salvation of her eternal soul. Two months prior, news had reached Savonarola of the death of his friend Angelo Poliziano. Poliziano, a renowned scholar of classical literature, had been intimately connected with Lorenzo de' Medici. He had served as his own personal advisor and confidant as well as a tutor to his children. Like many other intellectuals within Lorenzo's inner circle, Poliziano had fallen under Savonarola's influence in Lorenzo's last days. After his death, he had sought to distance himself somewhat from his unpopular successor and began to tie his public reputation more closely to that of Savonarola. During this time, he seems to have undergone some sort of spiritual conversion, and it has been rumored, though not confirmed, that in the final days of his life he was considering taking holy orders and becoming a member of the Dominican Order. News of the death of the relatively healthy 40-year-old Poliziano on September 24, 1494, had been deeply upsetting to Savonarola. Even more upsetting were the scandalous rumors that began to take root regarding his untimely demise. According to the most popular version of the story, Poliziano had contracted a mysterious fever, possibly a symptom of syphilis, a disease yet unknown in Europe, from a Greek boy with whom he was infatuated. As the story goes, this fever grew progressively worse as Poliziano stood outside the youth's window, serenading him with a lute, only for him to return home and pass away that night in a state of delirium. This version of events was readily believed by many, as Poliziano's homosexual proclivities had been well known. Savonarola, however, dismissed this account of his friend's death, interpreting it to be nothing more than a baseless piece of gossip spread by his opponents in an effort to defame the character of both himself and of the deceased. It is just as likely that the rumors were spread not by opponents of Savonarola, but by opponents of the Medici, many of whom roundly detested Poliziano on account of his close associations with Piero the Unfortunate and of his father. In either case, Landucci reported that, quote, Poliziano had been the object of much infamy and public vituperation, as it was possible for any one man to attract, end quote. Despite the controversy which surrounded him, Savonarola saw to it that his friend was buried in San Marco in the garb of a Dominican monk, as were his last wishes. Finally, on November 17th, the very same day that Charles VIII and the French army marched into Florence, another close friend and confidant of Savonarola, Pico della Mirandola, died suddenly. Pico's death had been just as unexpected and just as upsetting to Savonarola as Poliziano's, but in this case there were no scurrilous rumors immediately surrounding it. This is not to say that Pico had lived a life free from scandal. Quite the opposite was true. When he had been just 23 years old, Pico's heterodox religious beliefs had run him afoul of the Catholic Church. Rejecting the Church's traditional teachings, Pico had sought to create a new belief system which encompassed the whole of human thought. This naturally aroused the ire of the Catholic Church, and he was briefly imprisoned in France at the behest of the Pope. He was saved only by the intercession of Lorenzo de' Medici, who negotiated for the release of this renegade philosopher into his custody. This whole ordeal had shaken Pico to his core, and he emerged from it a changed man. 
Much like Poliziano, he underwent a spiritual conversion. And, also like Poliziano, he had subsequently fallen under the sway of Savonarola. Pico renounced his heretical beliefs and set his considerable intellectual talents towards other pursuits. Among the writings that Pico worked on during this time was a philosophical tract entitled Against Astrological Prediction. With the revival of classical knowledge that characterized the Renaissance, a belief in astrology, already widely practiced as it was, despite its prohibition by the church, came to be seen by many as an alternate belief system to Christianity. Astrology was particularly attractive to Renaissance thinkers because it sought to ascribe human behavior to observable physiological factors, i.e. the positions of the stars and planets, rather than to an all-knowing but invisible deity. Upon his return to Florence, Pico began to write a treatise denouncing astrology as delusional, metaphysical nonsense whose practitioners could no more predict human behavior than they could predict the weather. Pico was encouraged in this effort by his new friend, Savonarola, who is credited with co-authoring against astrological prediction. And yet, for all his desire to begin life anew and to live a virtuous life pleasing to God, Pico struggled still with worldly temptations. When he was not spending long hours studying at the library of San Marco, Pico could be found at the luxurious estate that he had inherited from his aristocratic family, where he lived more or less openly with a woman to whom he was not married, and whom many sources describe as being a concubine. Savonarola had repeatedly urged his friend to abandon his sinful lifestyle and to join the Dominican order, but Pico had long been reluctant to make such a commitment. Now, in November 1494, after having fallen deathly ill and feeling the life ebb away from his body, in his final days Pico bequeathed all of his worldly possessions to San Marco, and from his deathbed begged Savonarola to admit him into the order. Whether or not Savonarola obliged his friend's dying request is not known for certain, but according to a popular legend, the friar allowed the dying man to wear the distinctive black habit of the Dominicans while on his deathbed, and like Poliziano, he had him buried in San Marco, still clad in these robes. One of Savonarola's devotees, who also claimed to possess the gift of divine foresight, a 27-year-old woman named Camilla Rucali, had predicted two years prior that, quote, the Count of Mirandola will take the Dominican habit at the time of the lilies, end quote. Now that her prophecy had come to pass, her meaning had become apparent to all. The lily was the heraldic symbol of the French monarchy. Pico had finally accepted membership into the Dominican order on his deathbed, at the very same time that the King of France was entering Florence. Savonarola delivered his friend's eulogy a week later, declaring, quote, in mind alone he was greater than St. Augustine. Had he lived longer, he would have written such works that would have outshone those of any other living in the past eight centuries. Our dear friend Pico left us on the same day that Charles VIII was entering Florence, and the tears of men of letters compensated for the joy of the people. Without the light brought by the King of France, Florence might have perhaps never seen a more somber day than that which extinguished Mirandola's light." End quote. The deaths of Pico della Mirandola and Angelo Poliziani, the elder of whom was only 40, in such unnaturally rapid succession has aroused the suspicion of historians over the years. In 2007, the bodies of both of these men were exhumed in order to uncover the true causes of their death. The analysts discovered lethal traces of arsenic in both cadavers and reached the conclusion that their deaths had come about as a result of poisoning. It shouldn't take very long for most to determine the perpetrator and the motive behind these assassinations. Most historians tend to agree that all the evidence points directly to Piero de' Medici as the chief culprit, 
no doubt on account of the fact that these two men had grown too close to Savonarola for his comfort. And it is with that digression that I will end the narrative for today. In two weeks, we will first get caught up with Charles VIII and company as they march south, threatening Rome and Naples. With the French threat still looming over them all, would the people of Italy join forces against the invaders, or would the internal conflicts of the Italians allow the French to divide and conquer? Finally, we will pick up where we left off in Florence. How would the results of this conflict affect the city? Would Savonarola cut his retirement short to resume his leading role in the politics of God's new city on Earth, or would he abandon the people of Florence to the mercies of the new Cyrus? You'll have to tune in again in two weeks to have these and all other questions answered. If you have any other questions, comments, or concerns, please feel free to address them to me via email at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can reach me via Twitter or Facebook, links to both of which can be found in this episode's description. Finally, if you're searching for other ways to support the show, I encourage you to visit the show's Patreon page and the eBay page, links to both of which can also be found in this episode's description. In any event, this has been the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'd like to thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off. <laughs>